You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. When we want to give thanks for a meal, we fold our hands and say, grace, right? When we want to say thank you in Mexico, we say, gracias. When we want to say thank you in Italy, we say, grazie. When we want to say thank you in France, we say, Merci. Do you notice all the language of grace that's behind our language of thank you? Uh, same thing in the Bible. The language of grace and thank you are the same. Uh, b- both of them imply the giving and receiving a g- of a gift, the presence of gift. That's why thank you is such a powerful practice for followers of Jesus, because we're not just helping people feel appreciated. We're giving witness to the presence of the great gift of Jesus Christ in the world and in our lives and in the lives of people around us as well. Shared with you a couple weeks ago a lot of the science that's been surfacing recently around how good it is for us to say thank you, but there's a little bit of uh, skepticism or dissent. Uh, There was an article last month in the New York Times by a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich who wrote an opinion piece called uh, The Selfish Side of Gratitude. And I thought it was interesting. She, she, she talks about, yeah, so it's good for you to say thank you. And yet, is this just about positive thinking, achieving the right mental attitude on your yoga mat? Or is this just about um, uh, stale piety, just bowing your head for a few quick seconds before you dive into a meal? She asked us to think about saying thank you in a way that acknowledges the brokenness of the world. So she writes this, who picked the lettuce in the fields, processed the standing rib roast, drove these products to the stores, stacked them on the supermarket shelves, and of course prepared them and brought them to the table. Saying grace to an abstract God is an evasion. There are crowds, whole communities of actual people, many of them with aching backs and tenuous finances who made the meal possible. It's kind of interesting. It's a little bit of a challenge there. She's saying, really, is it possible to be thankful without justice? I want to flip that around a little bit this morning and ask, is it possible to have justice without being thankful? What uh, this writer calls to our attention is the question, what's the relationship between gratitude and justice? Now, this is a question that uh, about 1000 BC, a prophet surfaces for the king at that time. The king's name is David. We know King David. Many of us are named David. The prophet's name is Nathan. Many of us are named Nathan as well. This is a famous story. But um, this is the question that's being raised. What's the link between gratitude and justice? You may know the background of this moment, uh, David is at the height of his uh, career, but he's at the low point of his life. It's spring. Generals have gone out to battle. David's back home on his palace in Jerusalem. He's pacing on the rooftop. The roofs were flat in, in those days. He's looking over the horizon. I don't know what's going through his mind. Maybe he's sad about the death of his friend. Maybe he's feeling lonely. Uh, and uh, he looks out and he sees another rooftop in the distance. There's a figure on it. It's a woman. She's bathing. She's beautiful. And he ought to have looked away, but he doesn't look away. He looks harder. He gets real interested. He keeps looking until he becomes convinced that he has to have her. And so he does. Her name is Bathsheba. He takes her from her home, takes her from her husband, takes her from her first child, the child of his crime, takes her essentially from her life. And then this prophet comes. God sends Nathan. Because God loves justice. We've heard that already. 
And this is a great act of injustice. And so Nathan's now got the task of coming to the king of Jerusalem, an ancient king who has everything, especially all power, and he's going to have to confront the king on his injustice. A very dangerous thing. As you know, if you watch The Wire, you come at the king, you best not miss. And uh, so Nathan comes with a story uh, because he wants to... He wants to live after this encounter. So he wants really the king to see the situation of his own guilt before Nathan has to say anything about it. So what I want to do is read this story and then a couple verses after with you. Please open your Bible to uh, where we find this little parable of Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first eight verses. We're actually going to include the first little um, part that's at the end of chapter 11. You'll see it's printed that way in our Bible. So if you're able, please uh, stand with me. It's open to page 248. And we're going to find 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, but we're going to start just above there where it says, but. As Pee Wee Herman says, everyone's got a big but. Did I just say that out loud? <laughs> when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. The one had very rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guests who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I want to talk here about a just heart, a grateful heart, and a grace-filled heart. First, a just heart. Let's begin with justice. What is justice? How would you define justice? A lot of different theories and definitions. This is what I think the Bible presents to us. Justice is this, when every creature has what is needed to flourish in God's kingdom. That's justice. It's the state in which every creature has what is needed to flourish in God's creation. It's comprehensive. There are two things about uh, a just heart that emerge in this little parable that Nathan tells David. The first has to do with resources and the second with his heart. Resources are important to justice. Every creature has to have what that creature needs in order to thrive. That's about resources. And of course, this story, the resources are very disproportionate. One man, the rich man, he's got flocks and herds. Another man, a poor man, has but one little sheep. And so 
David the king, who has wealth, taking advantage of a family, Bathsheba and Uriah, who have very little, is committing injustice because of the disproportionate and greedy use of resources. But this uh, is not just about justice in the abstract. This is about a just heart. And did you notice the way Nathan presents this story to David? He strikes every single heart string that you could possibly pluck. I mean, he just kind of rubs it in. There's only like one sentence about the rich guy. Yeah, he's got a lot of herds. And then the whole story is really about building empathy with the poor guy. Oh, he bought this lamb. It was a female baby lamb. And he raised it with his family, sat at his own table and drank from his own cup. He clutched it in his bosom. And by the end, you just want everything that lamb could possibly get, right? You just want what that lamb wants, which is basically to live. And he won't live past the end of the story, but our hearts are bound to the one lamb, not the fox and the herds. And that's going to be significant uh, later on. But I want you to see that God's not trying to get David to believe in justice. He's trying to get David to want justice. I think that's so important because I believe in justice, but I'm not sure I always want justice enough to actually change my life to make a difference for justice. And I wonder about you. Today, our political discourse is... uh, Getting pretty gritty, and uh, some of some of you have noticed that. I've asked the question this week as I read this text: Why are we pushing to such political extremes at this point in our American history? I think the reason is because of the good news of Jesus is dropping out of our, our cultural consensus. I say that not just because of the tone of the debate and the way we're talking to one another. But I say that because I think on the left and on the right, things are polarizing. The, the, the left is doubling down on strategies of funding government entitlements. Because the, the idea is, well, we're going to just take what they need. On the right, we're doubling down on individual responsibility. Because the idea is, you just get what you deserve. And there's this polarization that's going. But I want to say, both of these things are legalistic. They're not about the gospel of Jesus, and they're not about hearts that want to be generous. So what do we do about this? Maybe there are a couple of you who've spent some time in New England, as I have, and you know the old Maine comedians, Bert and I. And there's this little sketch in Bert and I called Down East Socialism. And it goes like this. Eben went down to the Tremont Temple in Boston one Saturday night to hear Norman Thomas speak. Next Monday, Eben was a preaching socialism to Enoch Turner over the back fence. You know, Enoch, under socialism, a person shares everything. You mean to say, Eben, that if you had two farms, you'd give me one of them? Yep, if I had two farms, I'd give you one of them. You mean to say, Eben, that if you had two hay rigs, you'd give me one of them? Yep, if I had two hay rigs, I'd give you one of them. Or if you had two hogs, Eben, would you give me one of them? Darn you, Enoch, you knows I got two hogs. <laughs> right? It's easy to like socialism until they're coming for your hog, right? We don't necessarily want to share what we have. But a just heart would do just that. And that's why Nathan's working so hard on this story to align David's heart to God's justice. Don't you want that for yourself? Well, let's move on then, because uh, it's going to take a grateful heart. It's, gonna, it's not going to come from the law. It's going to come from a grateful heart. It has to do with thank you. A couple surprises in this passage. For me, the first surprise, when God, God through Nathan, essentially says to David, not you shall not, but 
you forgot. You forgot to say thank you. You forgot who I am. You forgot my generosity. You forgot that everything you have is something I gave you because I want you to flourish. You forgot all that. You see, the legalist, the jurist, the Pharisee would look at David and say, oh my gosh, here's what went wrong. You did this. You broke the commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. He breaks three of them and it does violate the law. Um, Thou shall not covet your neighbors. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not commit murder. Murder. Those are the three of them. But when the Lord speaks for himself on the lips of Nathan, it's not about breaking the law. David knew the law. The law didn't keep him from doing what he did, right? He knew it. He believed in the law. He believed in justice, but he did as Woody Allen says, the heart wants what the heart wants. And God says to him, your problem is that you forgot. You forgot who I am. Notice this. Verse 7. This is what, this is the first thing that the Lord says to him. I mean, Nathan says, you're, you're the man. But then the Lord says, I anointed you king over his, I gave you this kingdom. I anointed you. I rescued you. Your life owes itself to my redemptive work. I rescued you. I gave you, and then verse eight, I gave you your master's house, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And now catch this, this is the most powerful part. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Even more than that, again and again, I stand present in your life to give you more than you can ask or imagine. Did you forget that? Did you think you needed a little something else? Was there something you needed that I'm not willing to give you? He forgot. And the truth is, by the way, you know what Nathan means in Hebrew? It means he gave. Interesting that God chose a prophet named he gave to confront Nathan at this point in his life. But I want to suggest to you that that ingratitude toward God is what's wrong with the world. It's what makes the world not what it's supposed to be. It's what creates injustice, ingratitude. This is what Paul says in the beginning of Romans where he says, though they knew God, speaking of all humanity, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. This is the story of Genesis 1 through 3. God says, I'm going to see that it's good. He's making everything. It's good, it's good, it's good. Here, all the trees. You can have all the trees. Any of you want all the fruit. Eat it as much as you want. There is one tree that's not for you. But everything else is for you. And of course, what's the one tree that we want? We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I want this one. I want the one tree that you haven't given me. Why? Because they're futile in their thinking. What's the lie in the Garden of Eden? The serpent says, I think God's withholding something from you. I think God's withholding something that you need, something that's good. He's depriving you of something. Come on, let's go get it for ourselves. And this is what's going through David's heart. He's pacing the top of that roof and he's going, you know what? I don't have enough. And this is where I get convicted because I say this every day, multiple times a day. Are you with me? Do you ever find yourself ever catching yourself saying, I don't have enough time? I don't have enough energy? I don't have enough beauty. I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough position, influence, resources, security, sense of the future. That's all David's doing. He's just up there saying, I don't have enough. And he goes, maybe that thing. I know it's not mine, but if I had that, maybe life would be the way it should be. The irony is, if he goes for that, life is going to be anything but the way it should be. Not just for him, but for Uriah, Bathsheba, and this child that's lost. And they say nothing of civil war that will soon break out in Jerusalem. 
He forgets. By the way, the key word in this uh, passage is withhold. And I won't spend time. You can look at it in your small group. Verse 4, verse 6. Withhold is the Hebrew word there. Uh, This rich man withholds his sheep. And David accuses him saying he withheld pity or mercy. So I think when we are ingrateful and don't appreciate what it is God has given us, we start going for the one thing that we don't have. And we run the risk of taking a good away from one of God's creatures. Here's what I'm trying to say about a grateful heart. Behind every just act, there is a grateful heart. It's that impulse that says, thank you, God, I have enough, and now I can move out of the world with justice. Be an agent of justice. Behind every act, there's a grateful heart. We need this right now in the world like nothing. Income inequality is real, not just in America, but in the world. You know this. 20% of the world's elites are consuming 80% of the world's resources. And uh, when we watch the news and we see such destitution and suffering, I got to believe that Nathan would be saying to us, if we said, what's wrong with this? You're the man. We need to be able to say enough. Enough runaway consumption, enough accumulation. When I was a pastor down in Los Angeles one day, this uh, elderly woman came up to one of us and she said, why are you guys always talking about the corn industry? What's wrong with the corn industry? And uh, it turned out she was a little hard of hearing and what she, we were talking about the porn industry actually in Los Angeles. <laughs> and the reason we're talking about the porn industry in Los Angeles is as a pastor, you have to hear story after story of devastation. I had the opportunity to meet with a number of women who had come out of the porn industry. And what they want you to know, guys, and it's mostly guys, that what they want you to know is behind every picture, there is a story of desperation. There's a victim. And every time you and I click on one of those pictures, we're reinforcing an economic incentive to continue to victimize a people who are in those pictures. And so we say, oh, it's a victimless crime. I'm just, you know, trying to get a little bit more of satisfaction for myself in that moment. And these women are saying, absolutely not. That's not yours to take. So we have a group of guys here who are trying to help each other with their uh, tendency to, towards lust. And, you know, we all need that. But I love that they're serious about it and they're getting together. One of the things that they do is before they get out of bed, they encourage one another to say thank you for 10 things. Thank you for this bed. Thank you for the light that's coming. Whatever it is, 10 things. I got an email from someone this week who said, we just learned that we can't be unsatisfied and unthankful at the same time. Think about that. You can't be unsatisfied and unthankful at the same time. So we we engage this practice of having a grateful heart, knowing it helps us to live with enough. So a grateful heart is not about obligation. It's about gratitude. Where does this kind of gratitude come from? Well, let's move thirdly to a graceful heart. If the first surprise is that God doesn't say, you shall not, he says, you forgot. The second surprise is that we get what we need to flourish, not what we deserve. And that's what grace is. It's getting what you need, not what you deserve. David, as king, does what kings do. He pronounces the judgment. Did did you notice this in verse 8? As the Lord lives, that's... Uh, declaratory language. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Let him 
<laughs> let him restore the lamb fourfold, basically, and then we're going to kill him. He didn't know if this is a parable or, if, or this is an actual case. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. And David is beginning to think they're putting the hood over my head in the next few minutes. But read on. Come to verse 13. Look down the page there. David said to Nathan, and this is the great thing about David, by the way. Saul would run. Saul would rationalize. Saul would hide, but not David. He's a man after God's heart, and he understands the heart of grace. He says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. Grace. The Lord wants you to thrive, flourish. So he's going to give you grace. He's not going to give you what you deserve. He's going to forgive you. Yes, the consequences will persist, but you are now a free man, David. Now this, many people say this is not justice at all. But it is God's justice. It is God's way of rendering verdict. Thank God that David is not the king. Jesus Christ is the king who offers grace. Your sin will be put away. David doesn't know where it's put, but you and I know where it's put. It's put on the cross of Jesus. Within every grateful heart, there's a grace-filled heart. This is the, the motivation for gratitude. It's grace. In 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave the uh, commencement address at Harvard University. And if you haven't ever read it, you really should read it, particularly if you're a lawyer. Uh, just Google Alexander Solzhenitsyn Harvard, and you'll see it there. In this, Solzhenitsyn says this. He says, I have spent all my life under a communist regime, and I will tell you that a society without any objective legal scale is a terrible one indeed. What's he saying there? He's saying, I believe in law. You Americans have a great legal code. It's, it's important. But he goes on. He says, but a society based on the letter of the law and never reaching any higher fails to take full advantage of the full range of human possibilities. The letter of the law is too cold and formal to have a beneficial influence on society. It's about grace. Grace is what will motivate justice, not law. Grace is here, this language of Passover, is, uh, this, this language of uh, uh, put away is actually the language of Passover, verse 13. It's, it's said the Lord has passed over your sin, which is what the Lord did on Passover, right? The Exodus. And, and the Exodus became the model and the motivation for Israelite justice. In Exodus 23, verse 9, we read this. The Lord says to his people, you shall not oppress a resident alien. Why? You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. He's saying your experience of grace, having been rescued from slavery, is your motivation to become a rescuer for all people. Exodus 23, 9. It's the language of the Exodus, but it's also here the language of the cross. This, uh, this word that I told you is at the center of this text, withhold, is actually the same word in Greek translation that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 8.32 when he says, He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? God hasn't withheld his son. Now this is the greatest gift, the greatest gift, the gift of the Son of God. This is the one Lamb that matters, the one you lamb whose life was given to save all the rest. 
And as I said, just as the, your heart is bound in this story to that one little ewe lamb in the parable, when you experience the generosity of God and the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, for you, for you, for your sin, as I do for mine, then our hearts want just what that one lamb wants. And what that one lamb wants is for all people, for all creation to thrive, to receive his generosity. It becomes motive now. Robert McShane, the uh, Scottish preacher in the 19th century, preached a sermon in which he talked about grace, overcoming all of our objections to generosity. We say, oh, I don't know if it's such a good idea to give this away. And he says, listen to this. He says, well, objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, he writes, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money that I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So we're seeing the, the graceful heart. Within every grateful heart is a graceful heart. And it's not about law, but it's about grace. Grace that drives us to find concrete ways to say thank you by giving to other people. Here's the point then this morning. Justice is driven by expressions of gratitude. And expressions of gratitude are generated by experiences of grace. Let me ask you then, what are you thankful for today? What are you thankful for today? And what has God given you in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ? Bruce Walkie tells us that in the Old Testament, the just person is the person who disadvantages herself in order to advantage others. And God has disadvantaged himself in order to infinitely advantage us. He's our inspiration. He's our model. So here's our practice this week. If you've received a gift in Jesus this week, I want to invite you to give a gift in a tangible way to say thank you to someone around you. Make your tangible thank you, and you'll be an agent of justice. Your gratitude by which you say, enough, I have enough, is, is the same gratitude by which you can say, enough injustice in the world. Let me give what do you have? Maybe you have a place in line and there's somebody else who could benefit by coming in front of you. Maybe you have a pair of socks on your feet as you walk by a homeless person. You could sit down, engage in a conversation, take your socks off and give them to the person. Maybe you have time to listen to a friend who's hurting. Maybe you have an empty chair at your table and you could just cook a little bit more food and include someone who wouldn't be eating otherwise. Maybe you could just gorge some of the cash that's in your wallet for somebody who's in need. Our assignment this week is to make Seattle feel a little bit richer because Jesus is here. Let me close with a story, uh, which I think is the greatest illustration of this. If David in this moment is a negative illustration, here's the positive illustration. There was a time when Jesus was walking through Jericho, great teacher, the Messiah, the coming king. 
And he was surrounded by throngs of people. A crowd had built around him. As they approached Jericho, there was a man in a tree, a small man wearing fine clothes. And now, as he was spotted by the people in the crowd, there was an anticipation that was building. Because this man was extremely unjust. All his life, all he did was take and take and take and take. His name was Zacchaeus. You you remember this story? Jesus approaches him. What does he say? He says, Zacchaeus. You might ask yourself, how does he know his name? He's just coming into town. Well, sometimes Jesus knows things that ordinary people wouldn't know. But I don't think it's that. I think it's that as they approach the town, the tree, the crowd begins to call out to Zacchaeus and to heap scorn on him and to accuse him, to say, in essence, to him, you are the man. You're the man. You're the problem in this town. If we can get rid of you, we get rid of our problems and this town can be made the way it's supposed to be. Jesus doesn't give him what they expect. They expect him to say, you deserve to die. But Jesus says, I want to have lunch with you. Zacchaeus, come down. That's grace. And how does Zacchaeus respond to that grace? With generosity. Jesus doesn't say to him, oh, you really ought to be given more. You really ought to cut that out. Jesus just embraces him, forgiven man, loved. And Zacchaeus just responsively, reflexively says, you know what? I'm going to give away half of everything I have. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to give him fourfold in, in, in return. This is the same restitution that David proposes at the end of this story. And you got to believe, since he's a chief tax collector and has an army of underlings who have been exploiting the people of that area for years, that when he offers fourfold restoration, there is not a family in Jericho that does not feel like they hit the lottery that day. Everybody's going to get something. So when one person, when one sinner experiences grace in his heart, the whole city of Jericho experiences justice. Because Zacchaeus wants to say thank you. Let me close with the words of Johann Sebastian Bach in his cantata called I Have Enough. It's about Simeon, who when Jesus is born gets to hold the baby in his arms, and he bows to give thanks, not to an abstract God, but to a very concrete God. And here's what he says. He sings this. I have taken the Savior, the hope of the Gentiles, into my yearning arms. I have enough. I have seen him. My faith has held Jesus to my heart. Now I desire, but even today, To depart with joy from here, I have enough. Let's pray. Jesus, break into every syllable, every fiber, every atom, what we say and who we are that resists the idea that we have enough. You are such a generous God. You give and give and give. Help us to trust you to receive and receive and receive the fullness of your grace in Jesus Christ, and so to be set loose as joyful agents of justice in the world today. Lead us as we look for opportunities this week to give something unexpected uh, to the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-336-3000.
524-7301, extension 117.